now listening to the Charity Church Podcast. There's not many churches where they amen the bumper video. This is that one, man. We're, we're ready for Easter, right? <clears throat> Death to life coming next week. And uh, this week we are talking about rules and relationships. And um, I don't know about you, but I think sometimes that rules can be ridiculous. Anybody else feel that way? I mean, you think about it. When you were growing up, when you were a teenager, you thought the curfew was just crazy, especially if yours was earlier than, than your friends. You thought, why would I have to be home at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock or whatever? And you just thought the curfew was the most ridiculous rule you've ever heard. Uh, what about like speed limits? Anybody else think that sometimes, I mean, you're driving along, you're going 55 miles an hour, totally minding, totally minding your own business, and all of a sudden it's 25. And you're going, why? Why would it go from 55 to 25 in a heartbeat? I mean, we think sometimes that's just a ridiculous rule. Or if you've ever flown and you go through the TSA line. Yeah, we got some moans out of that one. I mean, you just think some of the rules are just ridiculous. You know, why do I have to take my watch off? Can't you see it's a watch? I mean, there's just crazy, crazy rules that we think about on that. Or maybe... You know, not to get into the weeds on this, but maybe back in the height of the pandemic, sometimes you thought masks were ridiculous and you were like, that is just a ridiculous rule to have to wear a mask, especially if you're in the car by yourself. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, but when we were like camping this weekend, my oldest grandson kept wanting me to go fishing with him. But, and he caught a couple of little small brim and he wanted to keep them. He wanted to keep them, not to eat. He wanted to keep them in a bucket so he could watch them swim. That's all he wanted. He wanted to dump the worms out and use the worm bucket to put a fish in. And he says, I said, we need to keep the worms so we can fish more. He said, no, keep the worms in there. Worms don't drown. And, but I said, the rule is it's a catch and release. You have to put them back in the water. He thought that was the most ridiculous rule ever. Why would you catch a fish only to have to turn around and let it go again? But when you think about rules, you think about this. At one particular time, someone thought that particular rule was a good idea because it had context. It had context. It had a reason behind the rule. Go back to your curfew. You had a curfew because what your parents probably told you the same thing my parents told me, nothing good happens after midnight, right? That was it. They were like, nothing good happens after midnight, so get home at 10. <laughs> really? That makes sense. Okay, back to that ridiculous rule. But no, they had their reasoning behind that. They, they knew that there was, there was context around that. The speed limit. The speed limit, the reason it goes from 55 to 25 is because you're driving past a, an, element, an elementary school, right? And a kid, a, a young child might run out in front of you and if you're going slow, you got time to react. So you go, oh, it's near a school. It makes more sense now. There's context to the law. TSA, even though some of those are ridiculous, if you're old enough to remember like I was, you remember 9-11. And so you know that things changed after 9-11 and the context around the reason you have to take your shoes off and your belt off and your jacket off and everything else off and go through there and scan, it's because of 9-11. There's context around that rule and it causes us to go, okay, that makes sense now. I don't mind so much doing that. Even the mask thing, there was a time when, you know, the 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 laws, I guess, and everything, or the science maybe at some point thought they would think that the masks were 
kind of a deterrent against spreading it or contracting it. And so there was a little bit of that. We endured that because we knew there was some context around that. And then you go back into the catch and release and Porter and you go, well, really, who knows why that rules exist? And it still doesn't have good context for most of us. But whenever you take a rule and, and you, you live it in a culture and a society and you can add context around it, we can sometimes abide by those without any kind of remorse or with any kind of resistance or rebellion against that because we do understand the context around the rule. And context matters when it comes to that, right? It really causes us to maybe obey a lot more willingly. But when it comes to relationships, rules are a little different. When rules dominate our relationship, we often rebel against those. So if you've ever been in a relationship and you just felt like it was all about rules and about how well you lived up to their, their rules, you know that it creates just a little bit of rebellion. There's an expectation they have, and so you have a little bit of rebellion against that. When I was a youth pastor down in Louisiana, um, we had a, a lady in our church and her son was in my youth group and she had this rule and some of you may have this rule and so I'm not you know, down in your rule, it, it's your rule, it's your context. I'm just gonna give my side of the story, okay? And you can tell yours to whoever you want to. I'm telling mine to hundreds of people. Um, but, but her rule was that every day when you get up, you make your bed. And I don't know how many times I listened to her complain about her son not making his bed every single day. And she would come to me and think that he was gonna just be this um, terrible kid because he didn't make his bed every day. And he would come to me and go, it's just my bed. And, and she would say, well, you explain it to him. And I finally had had enough, okay? I was like, I don't understand that rule. I don't understand. I don't make my bed every day. I still, as an adult, don't make my bed every day. We close the door. <laughs> don't go in my bedroom. If we wanna make our bed, we'll make our bed. If we wanna leave it, leave it unmade until the sheets fall off the bed and then we make it, we'll do that. But don't come dick, well, anyway, that's another sermon. But she made a big deal of this all the time. And so what happened is this boy just started rebelling against every rule because her rules were just so ridiculous and she was just come down on him so much on every single rule. And I told her, you gotta lighten up. So when you do have a rule that is important, because that one's not, when you do have a rule that is important, he won't rebel against it because you're making a big deal over the bed. So that was my parenting advice when I didn't have teenagers. And so I look back on it now and go, that was pretty good advice. But anyway, when rules do dominate our relationship, we often rebel against those. And so relationships that are governed solely by rules are not typically relationships that we desire. And you were in maybe a relationship with that. Maybe you dated somebody or maybe your parents or maybe your spouse or maybe a, a job somewhere. And it was just like the whole relationship was governed by these sets of rules. And there was just real no no relationship because it was all rule-based. And if you didn't perform this way, they would get upset and that kind of thing. And so keeping rules does not equal love because sometimes we get in this place where we just keep rules and we have no real connection with the person who is the, the rule enforcer. And we just do it out of obligation to the rule. Maybe you like rules and you like living by rules, but that doesn't mean that you love the rule giver. And so this whole thing between relationships and rules, there's a tension that happens there because we, we have rules that govern our life. And we don't just throw those out, 
but we also have relationships that we are in. And when those two collide, there needs to be a healthy connection between the two of those, or there's a rebellion against the relationship because the rules tend to dominate the relationship. And if you're like me, you look at the Old Testament and you see, if you like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Old Testament are called the books of the Torah or the books of the law, or the law and they are full of laws. Over 600, as a matter of fact. And if you read through those, you go, these rules are ridiculous. Some of the rules that govern their dietary, the way that they ate, some of those we go and go, why, why, why did they have those? And then there were, there were other laws that govern their days or the weeks and, and their festivals and feasts and all those things. And you look at those and you go, those just seem ridiculous. And you look at all of that Old Testament stuff and you go, sometimes it just seems like God was just all about the rules. But when we look at the Old Testament, we say all of that, and, and the Old Testament tends to make God out to be, look like just a rule enforcer, but that's not the case. Because Old Testament rules were impossible to keep, right? They would have never been able to keep all of those rules. All of those rules. But we'll talk about that in just a few moments. But in our text today is John chapter 13, verse 31. Jesus talks about this idea of rules and relationships. He has a conversation and it goes this way. When he's talking about Judas, the betrayer, when he had gone out, Jesus had dismissed him and told him, go do what you must do. Jesus said this, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. So Jesus was talking about, he was about to go to the cross and this is where he was going to be glorified through the cross, the death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus. He was gonna be glorified. He says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And so there's a lot of hymns and himself's going on there in there. But what, God, what Jesus is saying, if God glorifies him, talking about Jesus, if God glorifies him, God is going to glorify him in himself. So when Jesus is on the cross, he is going to be taking upon the sins of the world. God's gonna get glory through all of that. But at the end, Jesus is gonna be resurrected and he's gonna be glorified. And so God will be glorified. Jesus will be glorified in and of each, each other, what they're doing. They're gonna be glorifying one another. That's basically what he was saying. And he goes on. He says, little children. Now this is a term of endearment. It is a, a beautiful little term that only John uses it in the gospel. And John actually used it seven times in the book of 1 John. What I believe about John and what I know as I read through his gospel and his letters, I know that John recognized the love of God in a lot of places. He's the one that told us that God so loved the world. He's the one that said that he was the disciple whom God loved or that Jesus loved. And he talked about love an awful lot. And in this place right here, he talks about this, the little children. He uses this term of endearment, talking about how we endear and love people that we, or we care for people that we dearly love and we wanna look out for the best. He says, so yet a little while, I am with you. So it's Jesus talking to some people that he cares deeply about. And he's warning them about something. He says, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And what he was talking about here, he was referring to his Passover mission of death that he was about to embark upon. 
We're getting close to the, to the arrest of Jesus. Judas has just gone out to betray Jesus. And so here's Jesus talking about his mission of death through the Passover death that he was about to uh, take upon himself. And he says, when I go there, you can't come with me. You're not gonna be able to go there with me. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna be alone in this journey. I'm gonna be all alone and you're going to actually leave. You're gonna, you're gonna run from me. You're gonna scatter when this takes place. So you can't come with me on this, but I wanna leave you with something. I'm about to go to the cross. You're going to be scattered. I want you to remember something about this whole process that we've been going through for the last few years. I want you to remember this. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, to which most of us would probably go, really, another one? I mean, we already have over 600. And didn't you just criticize the Pharisees about all of these demands they lay upon people and all these extra um, laws that they lay on people that they don't even wanna lift a finger to help them? So here you are adding another one to us, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And when you look at that and I look at that, we go, how could I love such and such? And we go, I'm gonna resist that rule just a little bit and it does not make sense to us without proper context. Loving one another does not make sense in a lot of cases, right? It doesn't make sense when it comes to that person that has lied on you, that has cheated you, that has cheated on you, that person who has, who has talked about you behind your back and you found out about it. It does not make sense to love them. As a matter of fact, it makes more sense to hold a grudge against them. It makes more sense to delete them as your friend and unfollow them and block them. And it makes more sense to do all of that than it does to love them. But here Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a new commandment. I'm giving you something that I want you to do as I leave, as I go to this, this death that awaits me, I'm leaving you with a new commandment. And that commandment is, I want you to love one another. I want you to look around and I want you to find one another and I want you to just love them, even when they don't look lovable. Because here's the thing, before the Old Testament law, God had established this relationship with the Israelites. So we look back at the Old Testament, we see all of the laws, and we look at that and we go, why were all those laws enforced or why were they even put there? Well, there was a relationship that had been established between God and the Israelites. And that relationship happened before the law was given, back when they were in the land of Egypt. Over in the book of Exodus chapter 20, we see this. God said this, I am the Lord, your God. I just want you to know I am the Lord and I am your God. And he reminded them, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So while you were over in Egypt, you were making bricks and you were working in the heat and they were, you were their slaves. I just want you to know I was the Lord, your God, and I am the one who sent Moses, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one who put those 10 plagues in place. I'm the one who opened the Red Sea. I'm the one who has fed you in the wilderness for all of these days. And now I just want you to know, I am the Lord, your God. There's a relationship between God and his people, which was the foundation or the backstory to the law or the covenant that was taking place here. And he says this, you shall have no other gods before me. Meaning I don't want you to put anything else as a higher priority in your life than me. And the reason I want that is because of the relationship that we have. 
Before what I have done for you, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of that land where you were a slave and I have set you free. And as a result, I don't want your bass boat to be more important than me. I don't want your um, spouse to be any more important or more important than me. I don't want your kids to rise to a place that they are more important than me. I don't want you to have anything in your life that is more important than me. And the context for that law or that rule was that he had brought them out of the land of Egypt, that he was the Lord, their God, who had delivered them. And so this covenant that he had put on them was this covenant based upon a relationship that he had. So therefore, he says, I've got some laws that I want you to live by. And if we forget the covenant, it would make the commands meaningless. If you forget that covenant, if you forgot and you didn't realize what God had brought the Israelites out of, all of the, the, the 10 commandments would not make sense. I mean, the first four where he says, don't have another God before me, would not make sense. What have you done for me? Or don't bow down before any graven images. Why not? What have you done for me? Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Why not? Everybody else does it. And you don't really mean anything to me. Honor, the, the, um, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Why? Those, those rules were established based upon a covenant because God says, I have delivered you, therefore, I don't want you to have another God before me. And there's a relationship aspect to that part of the law or all of the law, but that, those in specific. So for us, rules need to be contextualized for them to have and take on real meaning. But once they take on real meaning and they're contextualized, we have an easier time listening to those things. We have an easier time obeying and listening to those laws. So when we ask the question, why should I love such and such? That is a legitimate question. That is a legitimate question that you probably have a right to answer. And there are some people that you are going to find difficult to love, right? There's going to be people until we understand the rationale behind the obedience, the, the rationale behind why Jesus would say, love one another. We need to see the context from which Jesus said those words. And he establishes that for us in verse, in verse 34. He says, this new commandment I give you, I want you to love one another. And here's the context. The reason behind it, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I have demonstrated love for you, and the way I've demonstrated love for you is the same love that I want you to go out and demonstrate love for one another. This context really matters because when we say, I don't want to love that person because that person doesn't deserve to be loved by me, you just have to look at what Jesus said is that you didn't deserve to be loved either, but yet what did he do? He loved you. While you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you. So because Jesus kind of gives that or does give that kind of love for us, we turn around and love one another with that same type of love because Jesus loved us, then you are also to love one another. So this new commandment is based upon this new covenant. And this new covenant was established with Jesus dying on the cross. He gave the ultimate sacrifice. No greater love has no man than this. What? That he would lay down his life for a friend. And that's what Jesus did for you and me. He laid his life down for us. This new covenant was in his blood. 
And this new blood covenant that he made with you and me was done, it was born out of love for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This love was based, this love that God has for us is why Jesus went to the cross and because he went to the cross, because he loved us, we in turn love other people. That's the context. That's the context. That's the reason behind it. And if we don't understand that, back in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter eight, verse 13, we're not really sure who the author is of this, but we know that it was divinely inspired. So the Holy Spirit actually wrote this. He says, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first covenant or the first one obsolete or really of no power any longer. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to, be va to vanish away. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is this new covenant that came along really made the old covenant obsolete. We look at the old covenant, we go, wow, I cannot possibly keep all 600 and something of those laws. And you know what? You can't do that. And anybody that tells you that you're obligated to that, they're wrong. They're preaching a false gospel. And so what he's saying in this new covenant, he's saying there's a new covenant that's in Jesus's blood. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled all of that. You don't have to worry about the festivals and the feasts any longer. You don't have to worry about the dietary laws any longer. God established that with Peter when he saw the, the blanket and all the animals coming down from heaven. And he says, arise, kill and eat, enjoy it all. So there's a, there was a new covenant that came along when Jesus came. And when he came, this old covenant vanishes away because there's a new and a better covenant in Jesus Christ. So now our obedience is not based upon the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. No, it's based upon you and me coming out of bondage from our sin through what Jesus did on the cross. We've been delivered and now we are set free through Jesus Christ, the new covenant. And so this, now our obedience is based upon that new covenant and not some old obsolete covenant that pointed to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing to a savior, was pointing to Jesus. Every dietary law, every feast, everything was looking, at, looking forward to a Messiah. Jesus came and he fulfilled every bit of that. And so because of that, we're obedient based upon the new covenant in his blood. So our obedience finds its basis in a relationship with Jesus through the covenant of his blood. And what happens is this, there are some rules, there are some guidelines, there are some boundaries because every part of society has that, but it is now an internal and not an external because it's been placed into our hearts. When God sends his Holy Spirit to live in us when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he writes his law upon our hearts. And so we are obedient out of our love for Jesus Christ and his love for us. So it comes from here, it comes from the internal points, not from the external. The Pharisees had the external. God says, you look like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look good, but on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. Because now when we become a follower of Jesus, there's an internal portion based upon the Holy Spirit living in us that causes us to be obedient to what God has for us. So the old covenant came, it served the purpose of informing sinners, you and me, of their need for a savior. It grew old and has now died. The old covenant did its job and it did a great job. Because when I look at the Old Testament, I know that I need a savior. When I look at the 10 commandments 
And it says that um, thou shalt not lie. You know, I go, okay, I probably lied a time or two. So I've broken that, you know? And then I look at that one number six that says, don't murder. I've never murdered anybody. Then Jesus comes along and he says, you know what? You saw it, you, you heard it said, thou shalt not murder. I'm telling you, if you hate somebody or have, if you dislike somebody, you've already committed murder in your heart, you're guilty. And I'm going, well, that one got me. And you just go through them all and Jesus was saying, listen, there was a standard back then that was all external based. It was all about how you performed and how you lived and, and if you could cover it up and made everything look good. But I'm telling you, Jesus said, I'm telling you, I'm looking internally at your heart. And you may not have ever physically murdered somebody, but you sure did with your mouth when you were driving down the road the other day. And I'm going, guilty is charged a few times here and there. And so this, but the Old Testament pointed to our need for a savior. Because I look at my heart, I'm going, I need a savior. This thing's never gonna be perfect until I get to heaven. But Jesus comes in and washes my sins away and he helps me live victorious, but, but it's through this death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the basis of the new covenant is the cross and not the law. And the writer of Hebrews says it's a better way. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Now I found this graphic that really helped. I watched that, that um, documentary. It's called the, uh, the American Gospel. I uh, watched it on, I think maybe Amazon Prime or something like that. And they had some really good graphics. So I just watched the video, screenshot it. So the, this graphic's not gonna be great, it's kind of blurry, but it does give a good visualization for kind of what faith and works all have to do with one another. And here's what it says. Faith and works, faith in some religious systems, and maybe this is the way you brought up and believe, faith plus your works equals your salvation. And this system makes works the root of your salvation. So the only way you're gonna get in good favor with God, it's all performance-based. It's all about your works. It's all about how good you are. It's all about living up to all of these rules that God's laid out. And so we think that we have faith, we add works to that, and that gets us salvation, and it puts roots at the work, or at the root of why we do it. But the better way, and the true way, and the scriptural way is this. Faith is salvation plus works, and the works becomes the fruit of our salvation. So we work from a position of forgiveness, not for a position of forgiveness. And so we look at faith and we get salvation through, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So our salvation points us to the reason we do what we do. It's the reason we don't kill somebody. Not just because we'll go to jail, it's because it's the fruit of our salvation. We don't take God's name in vain. It's because it's a, the fruit of our salvation. It's, it's how we live out what's already happened internally. And we're not working for a position of forgiveness. We're working from a position of forgiveness. So when we go back to this new commandment that Jesus gives, this new commandment to love one another is based upon the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross and the love that he demonstrated for you and me. And what Jesus did in this little, this couple of verses is he contextualized for us this commandment to love one another. It's not because they deserve it. It's because you didn't deserve it and Jesus gave it to you anyway. And that's the same way you give it out to somebody else. They may not deserve it, but because you received it, you give it out freely. And Jesus even looked back and he says, listen, you take all of those Old Testament commandments, put them all down there. How do you summarize them? 
Love God, love people. That's great. All the law, all the prophets hang on those two. And we can see that. We can do those kinds of things. But Jesus even came back and he said this, by this will all people know that you're my disciples. This is how they're gonna know you're my follower. Not by showing up to church on Sunday and raising your hands higher than everybody else. It's not even gonna be through your demonstrative love toward God, okay? God's easy to love. God's easy for most of us to love unless you've had something tragic and you, you question God's existence or, or his motives. But most people find it easy to love God because God is good. By this will all people know that you're my disciples. It's if you have love for one another. That's how we're gonna know. So take all the commands, take all of those 600 and something commands, 611, 613, depending on how you count, and, and you summarize those in love God, love people. And Jesus is saying, I'm gonna even bring it down even one step further from you. The way people are gonna know that you love me and that you're in a relationship with me is how well you love one another. So these rules and everything that you've got to follow, they're the outpouring. So loving one another, this rule that I'm just saying, let this guide your life, let this guide your relationships. And you just ask yourself, what does love require for me to do for this person? What does love require for me to say to this person? How does love require for me to not say what I want to say to this person? How does love guide that? And love is the foundation behind all the relationships. And that's the way people know that we are disciples of Jesus. It's how we love one another. And we do that even when it's hard because Jesus came to shift us from rules to a relationship. He puts rules as the outflow of the relationship, not the foundation of the relationship. It's the outflowing of the relationship that we have with God, but it's not the foundation. And we're never gonna get 100% right, but Jesus demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. He died for us. He died for you when you didn't deserve it. He took upon you the shame, the guilt, the punishment for all of your sins, and you did not deserve it because he loved you. And he says, in turn, I just want you to go out and love one another. Go love one another and demonstrate that love toward Others. So when you think about that, think of the most ridiculous rule that you've ever heard, whatever it might have been. And what did, you, what did you think once you found the context? Or if you ever found it, what were the context around maybe that rule? How does context make a difference in understanding rules? Number three, does understanding Jesus' love help understand his command for us to love one another? How does that affect? How does Jesus' love help us understand his command to love one another? And then finally, who do you need to demonstrate love toward that can only be done through Jesus' love for you? There's somebody in your life, because I know there's people in my life, that I'm gonna only be able to do that through the demonstration of love that Jesus had for me, and I go out and in turn love people the way Christ loved me. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, you've never believed in and trusted him as your Lord and Savior because of the sacrifice he made for you, today would be a great day. You can meet me down front or you can meet me back in the guest VIP room and I would love to share more about that with you. Let's stand together as we pray. God, we're so thankful today that Jesus demonstrated his love toward us. While we were still sinners, he still died for us. He laid down his life for us. So help us understanding the context of his love for us to love one another the way you've called us to. If there is somebody here today that's never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, 
It's my prayer that they would do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.